Yellowstone, we were once watching um, what at the time was one of the largest packs of wolves ever. And we'd gone out at dawn to discover the pack. It was actually one of those great seminal yeah. moments in my life because I'd anticipated a, 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 a valley off the valley where I thought the wolves might be seen and that we could just quietly sit. And, and there, a line of wolves emerged from the forest at dawn. And um, and we were able to watch them do lots of unobserved behaviour, just socialising, the alpha animals chivying, the, the younger animals along to go out hunting. Uh, we watched the ravens come down and they, the ravens would pull the tails of the wolves because it was the way the, the ravens would get fed on the leftovers of the kills. So the, the symbiotic relationship with the ravens and the wolves was really magical. Anyway, we watched the wolves begin their day and you know, you'd see one wolf emerge from the tree. There's a wolf, there's a wolf. And then another, and another, and another. And to see 32 wolves process in single file off out of the trees, through the clearing, into the next countries, and know that their express purpose was, you know, they were going to bring down the next suitable prey item they could, um, was, was a very powerful thing to witness. The wolves all halted and uh, were, were not doing very much and sat at the the, the rise and where we were stood completely unbeknownst to us in the sagebrush around us were clearly a pack of coyotes we didn't know they were there they were in, I mean, so close but, mm. but took no notice of us and one of the wolves of the Lamar pack started howling and the entire pack of coyotes around us all emerged from the undergrowth and stood up and howled back at them and then the wolves in this great chorus of 32 animals howled across and I, I always remember being struck by the fact that we weren't allowed to howl yes. <laughs> but every other animal in the park could yeah. But, um, yeah. but it was a very very powerful music a bond uh, that, and a sound that um, it's unique to the wolf we hear dogs do it but the way in which a wolf howls is quite unlike anything else it is My name is Ian Rowlands. And I'm Colin Williams. And welcome to Beneath the Stream, a podcast about the human experience in the non-human world. And uh, I've been itching to get to this one, Colin, because uh, I want to talk about the wolf in reality and as an archetype. And I guess I think we come to wolf with all our cultural biases bristling, if you like. If you listen to that story of the two of us, uh, there's a yours and mine on display. We're kind of eulogizing about wolf. Um, but of course, that's not something that modern humans have done throughout our history. So I thought I'd give you some contrasting views of wolf and see what you think of them. So uh, first up, we've got a uh, quoting Theodore Roosevelt, who said, uh, the wolf is the arch type of raven, the beast of waste and desolation. Mm. Uh, by contrast, we've got Derwood L. Allen saying, we listened for a voice crying in the wilderness, and we heard the jubilation of wolves. And the, the, the poles apart, really, those views, but perhaps this third perspective from the great writer that you'll know, Aldo Leopold, gives the sort of balance when he says, 
Only a mountain has lived long enough to listen objectively to the howl of a wolf. So we're pondering really where we stand in those extremes on the views of wolves. And I think I kind of know where you stand or where our listeners stand, but have, have a crack at it first off. Only the mountain has lived long enough to listen objectively to the howl of a wolf. And I think within that is, I think that nicely encapsulates the way I feel about them. Um, the inference that um, w- might take us a long time as a race and as a species to let go of the prejudices we've built up against the wolf um, in our culture and literature and and storytelling and mythologies um, and uh, that uh, we could we could live a thousand lifetimes and still not quite be able to uh, comprehend um, what the howl of a wolf really means and the sort of deep history and deep time that's uh, encapsulated in that sound and that is encapsulated in the life of the wolf and the landscapes of the wolf and uh, yeah that Roosevelt quote about uh, it being a, a an animal of desolation um, doesn't really ring true for me but at the same time you want I can see how the archetype of the wolf includes all of those things um, it includes the fear it includes the desolation it includes the sound um, and the life of it. Yeah, I, I think I stand where you do in my admiration, adoration of the animal and what it means. Um, but I can also see why it means other things to other people. And I suppose I've got to chip in to play devil's advocate with myself, uh, if that's a weirdly, bizarrely partridge-like comment. But uh, um I suppose I've watched wolves brutally, slowly take down an elk, and it can take hours, sometimes days, for it to happen. So it's, you know, before we firmly place them in the mythological noble creature category, let's remember, you know, what it is the business of being a wolf is about. I mean, I've been hiking and a wolf has come within 40 feet, 15 meters to look at me, and then it moved on in this sort of, otherworldly ghost-like form through the trees and it was um it was kind of mystical uh, you know i didn't feel threatened and then by contrast I remember visiting i went to a, an enclosure um with one of the wolf societies in britain and I, I we went to visit this alpha male wolf in a, a fenced enclosure that looked like a kind of concentration camp frankly it was a brutalist structure and and this wolf rushed to the bars this snarling urinating raw muscular bundle of aggression huge thing it was and and that encounter has seared itself into my mind that i would never want to be taken down by a wolf you know so there uh, i guess to balance that out that's that's there for me um and of course we also live in a country where in Britain, where we're recording this, we, we were probably the first country to successfully exterminate our wolves, which is a dubious honour, isn't it? I mean, they, they linger on in place names like Blythe in Welsh and Mother in, in Gaelic, and but they vanish like the dodo. You know, they're virtually gone, just remembered in some place names. So, um, so this isn't a podcast about bringing back wolves to Britain, or it's a wider perspective than that, I hope. Um, I think it'd be good to invite people listening uh, and you and me to consider all aspects of that archetype Mm. and what it's really like to live alongside wolves or 
you know, Isaiah 11, 6, and the wolf will dwell with the lamb. You know, what's what's it like to, to live alongside those creatures? So, so here we go then. So conjure up the image of a wild wolf. I'm inviting you to do this. And then paint the landscape in words. What, what do you see? Picture it for me. What's the landscape look like? Your experience of wolves in the flesh is much greater than mine, but uh, I suppose... Uh, Coming from a mixture of imagination and experience, painting the landscape. Okay. Um, trees are involved. Um, there's trees in the landscape, um, but there's also um, clearings, gaps in those trees. There's spaces um, upon which the eye falls um, because they're the kind of spaces that you you end up looking for things if you know that those animals are there then um then you look into those gaps into those clearings into those uh forest edges um and then also it's not necessarily a um certainly not a flat landscape in my imagination and memory either it's a there's mountains whether close in or or far away um there's certainly at least a backdrop of mountains um a landscape with folds, a landscape with hiding places, um, I suppose. And uh, it's a landscape that invites the eye to explore it and roam around it, a place that's difficult to take in all at once. That's the landscape that I imagine um, when I when I think of Wolf. That's, that's, uh, that's nicely painted, the word picture of M.R. James. It's really good. I like it. Um... And I guess um, to add to that, so picture people listening and now picturing a wolf in a landscape. I mean, they are the most widely distributed land mammal on our planet. It's amazing to think that, isn't it? So they're found in those forests, in prairies, in tundra, in mountains, um, but also in deserts and in swamps and farmland and on the periphery of towns and cities. So we have a vision of wolf or different cultures will have different visions of wolves um but they often confound your expectations you know they're adaptable living from minus 56 degrees to plus 50 degrees centigrade so they they, they're kind of in all those extremes i've seen them in poland spain germany uh, israel morocco india canada usa um and everywhere they look a bit different you know they're in all different shades of white or gray and brown or even red in north carolina you've got canis rufus as opposed to canis lupus so it's red wolf uh there which are kind of reddish color and the ones i've seen in the middle east were were really small and scrawny things they can be a little little as sort of 13 kilos i think that's about 29 pounds Mm. and up in the northern tundra i've not seen them there but uh 78 kilos 172 pounds so it's like an enormous difference in size so um i wanted to share a bit of that really just to picture those animals in in your mind in my mind in the landscape and and i suppose if i want to also chip in here that i want to acknowledge a lot of my information is based on researchers scientists i've met authors i've read who filled in that picture um a lot of the great facts come from David Meech, one of the leading authorities on wolves, a published scientist. Um, 
I've met Doug Smith, who is uh, in Yellowstone, the project leader for the mm. Wolf Restoration Project, and people like Jim Halfpenny and Dan Hartman. So there's a lot to learn about wolves. Um, but I thought we'd start by imagining ourselves in the pack of wolves. Um, right. So, uh, so here, here's a quote from the Red Hot Chili Peppers, Colin. Uh, from their track, Obviously. their track easily throw me to the wolves because there's order in the pack. Aren't those packs also quite socially complex? There's a it's 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 not a simple interplay between. I mean, everybody knows the phrase alpha male, but it's not it's not as simple as that, is it? Within wolf packs, yeah, it's quite complex relationships. It's nice you kind of um, touched on something I was going to come to. So it's like uh, you know you, we you have these phrases like. Alpha sort of implies that you've kind of competed to get to the top. But in fact, packs often form around, it seems, a mated pair. And they can be dominant animals, but they sometimes can be dominant and aggressively dominant, but sometimes dominant and benevolent. Um, but that mated pair will, you know, form a pack around their offspring. They'll adopt other strange wolves that have wandered into their territory. They'll kill other strange wolves that come into the territory. Um, packs can be up to 42 animals, but each year most wolves leave their family pack, but they might mm. come back later. So it's a whole flux of animals about who's leading, who's in, in control. Um, and their characters as individuals can change, so they can be very subservient in early life and then something happens and they become dominant and want to establish a pack of their own or mm. or the opposite can happen a very aggressive dominant animals can have some trauma and become the most shy and retiring of the pack so um, um and the other fascinating thing is that the, the quote alpha animals may not they may lead the pack or they might not lead the kill you know they mm. might um coordinate things or chivy animals to go hunting so it has a sort of um and, uh, but there's no fixed rules about that but that can often happen so uh, you're right the, the the structure of the pack is kind of a flexible thing but i love this um rudyard kipling quote for uh, kind of talking about a kayla the wolf i suppose really but the strength of the yeah. pack is the wolf and the strength of the wolf is the pack and i think that's something that yeah. really appeals to us as humans yeah, and I suppose uh, what sets our hearts and imaginations ra racing about the wolf partly, and especially the wolf pack, is um, this idea of running with the pack. There's a, there's a certain uh, there's a certain wildness and freedom we associate with those. Uh, well, let's let's call them for what they are cliches in a lot of cases, um, because you've already spoken so well about why many of our um, impressions of wolves and of wolf packs are not not wrong necessarily but romanticized or simplified um and uh, when you talk about how how much wolf mortality is associated with wolves killing wolves um then we begin to understand a little bit more about um not not only are they a thing not to be trivialized the idea of the wolf pack is not something we can um reduce down to um at our convenience just to make it understandable or just to make it appealing there's a i remember a ranger in in yellowstone saying to me once and i think he picked this quote up from somewhere else but he said uh, a tiger and a lion may be more powerful but a wolf 
doesn't perform in the circus. <laughs> and I, I kind of liked yeah, it. Right. It's like, uh, you know, you're not going to get a wolf to do something it doesn't want to do. You know, it's uh, yeah. that may not be strictly true, but I think you, you kind of, you know that that pack animal is not going to be lightly tamed. Yeah. Yeah. And and I think I think part of its um, appeal and part of the reason are spiritually and imaginatively that we as humans keep going back to the wolf time and time again is it was kind of encapsulated in that one of the anecdotes you related at the top of the podcast, you know, where you you're on a trail and you saw the wolf kind of crossing the trail and looking at you and then disappearing into the trees. It's that element of um, that element of secrecy. Um, and and you know one might say that you know when they start howling at night or when they're when they're in full flow as a coursing predator bringing down their prey they're anything but secret but uh, largely we think about them accurately in terms of of sort of staying hidden and not really wanting to show themselves um, too much you're still left with the impression that if they didn't want to share um, their space with you or share a sightline with you um, they wouldn't. Um, and uh, I like I like that very much. That very much appeals to me that they have a certain indifference to us um, and all of our kind of degraded senses of sight, smell, and hearing, um, which they're all so much better at than us. I like that. And I guess I wanted to contrast that really with um, perhaps uh, a lot of indigenous views of wolf, where, you know, in many ways, when I hear you speaking, it's almost talking about modern humans and all the sensibilities. We've Mm. we've lost all our links Mm. with our ancestors and spiritual values or whatever it is that we we have a closer affinity with these creatures. So many, you know, it's Native American culture, so I'm most familiar with their relationship with wolf. Um, They... They believed wolves were once human. You know, they believed that wolves, you have to avoid offending wolves. Um, you appreciate their skills and the way that they nurture their families. I know in Alaska it's the Nunamiat, never spell that, say that correctly, but they, they kind of have a, um, an expressed appreciation for wolf at the same time as trapping them for fur. So it's not it's a complex relationship of course and and they're one of the most common clan animals in, in native american cultures I, I kind of started to write down those that i knew about and looked up a few that i didn't so tribes with wolf clans include the cree the cherokee the chippewa huron iroquois osage chickasaw pueblo tribes in new mexico and then up on the northwest coast where you'll see wolves on what we call totem poles the tlingit Simshan, it's it's a common animal for for the Plains Indians. You know, a lot of the mm. mythology there is about teaching young men to look back on your trail that you've walked, like wolves do, learn your roots, and show stamina for how far you can you can travel. And uh, and I was I was fascinated to read um, just in doing a little bit of research, really, for this podcast um, that the the Blackfoot Confederacy of of Indian Nations, uh, so that's the Siksika Nation, the Kenai Nation, the Pikani Nation, um, that they call the Milky Way, you know, the the, the celestial body, um, the Wolf Path. The Wolf kind of crosses those boundaries between heaven and earth as well. It's both both an earthly thing, an earthly relative, 
um, as well as being a, a celestial being. Um, That's really cool. It's, I'd not heard that one before. I, I knew the, uh, this is, it's not similar, but it's equally powerful, the Pawnee of a creation myth where the, the wolf was the first creature to experience death. And uh, mm. the wolf star, enraged at not being invited to attend a council on how the earth should be made, sent a wolf to steal the whirlwind bag of the storm that comes out of the west. And it contained Whoa. the first humans. And being freed from the bag, the humans killed the wolf, thus bringing death into the world. But uh, mm. I'd not heard the, the constellation. That's, that's fascinating. And I, I, I know there's the deep roots to this, and I feel that people can't, modern humans can't shake themselves of that. That, uh, you know, that uh, some tribes have this sort of notion of wolf as a, a brother a true friend, a cultural hero. You have the Zuni carving. You know, I have one, a stone wolf fetish for protection. And uh, these deep-rooted cultures admire them, not all of them, and they're most reviled perhaps by the cultures where we've lost our roots. So is there... Is there equivalence of that reverence for the wolf in in old world cultures, um, as it were, in in European cultures? Either, well, whether it, whether it's kind of Mediterranean basin or whether it's Northern Europe, is 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 there similar reverence for the wolf in some of those ancient cultures and mythologies? I think it's really interesting because you, uh, from from what I have learned in the past there's sort of almost a tipping point so if you go back into Norse mythology um, there were sort of three malevolent wolves Fenrir the eldest child of Loki <laughs> probably says enough doesn't it really but um, but so Fen so there were wolves in in that sort of antique wolves of course closely identified um, as a symbol of Rome uh, so the, mm. the Lupa Romana um, being a really a powerful expression of loyalty to Rome and the emperor. So, and wolves were, were generally not captured by the Romans and used in uh, the Colosseum and in gladiatorial things. Interesting. Wolves were viewed, mm. uh, had a sort of special status. Uh, I mean, they were rather connected to the sort of religious importance of the wolf to the Romans. So there's, there's a lot there if you go back where, where wolves were viewed differently. And the same as they were important in Celtic cultures and Anglo-Saxon cultures, and then we'll we'll come to this in a bit. I guess it's when we, it's when in the Middle Ages, you know, scripture and biblical texts are interpreted certain ways, that are that a relationship with wolf seems to, seems to change, and, and mm. most scriptural references to wolves are not complementary, and so in in indeed it's in, we're back to wilderness and desolation aren't we it, and uh, that's exactly it yeah i mean that's 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 where that that kind of comes from and uh i suppose we um we have this long history of persecution of the wolf and and we're kind of touching upon the point at which that kicked off there's a lovely quote by barry lopez you'll you'll probably know this one uh, the writer barry lopez um Throughout the centuries, we've projected onto the wolf the qualities we most despise and fear in ourselves. So, you know, you have medieval Europe looking at scriptural things, particularly the Roman Catholic Church, a lot of negative imagery of wolves, um, 
creating a sense of real devils prowling the real world. Um, actually, there's a I found a cost a, a website that had um, referenced the number of references to wolves in scripture, and basically they were wolves were illustrative of wicked rulers, fierce enemies, <laughs> false teachers, the, the rapacious nature of humans, the devil, destruction to flocks of sheep, or just generally wicked. <laughs> so. <Yeah. laughs> <laughs> um, so, so by the early Middle Ages, you know, the, choke had, the, the church had sort of stoked up this fear and symbolism, and you, and you yeah. you have the folk tales of that era of um, or later times in Europe and Russia and the West of Little Red Riding Hood, Three Little Pigs, yeah, yeah. Big Bad Wolf from Aesop's Fables and Grimm's Fairy Tales, and suddenly you have you know a very different cultural association with the wolf. It, it, it is not. It, it's it's easy to say this um, with the benefit of history and benefit of a certain worldview, but it 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 was and is nothing less than demonization. There's 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 no other word for it. Um, it it's not. It goes beyond simple metaphor. Uh, it goes beyond the use of an animal and 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 the metaphors attached to it just to scare the children or, or whatever it might be. Um, it is a demonization and and uh, and before we go back we'll 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 go forward again because it it's it's happening today still and and i saw a tweet from um uh, a writer um recently where um their child had been given a book at school to study and it was all about adjectives and descriptions and it was a kind of alphabetical book, and so there was a picture of something on each page, and then a list of adjectives which you might apply to that thing. And on the on the W page was a picture of a wolf. So this was this is this is in 2020 we're talking about, and the adjectives to describe the wolf were vicious, sly, um, fierce, um, snarling. Um, and, and and not a single adjective that you that you might apply to a wolf um, graceful um, resourceful um, beautiful it, there, there was there was nothing um, in there was so so right now that demonization still occurs and and the person that the people that published that book might might think nothing of that it's a symbol isn't it? it's a sign of how, if in some ways, how little we've moved on from, um, you know, the Pilgrim Fathers and their view of how they needed to destroy the predator and push back the wilderness the, the minute they arrived in, in the New World. I think we've talked in the past in podcasts about the power of these archetypes and how difficult they are to shift because we, as humans, look for a shorthand to uh, mm. uh, the way that we reference the world beyond us. It makes it easier. Um I, in the, I was in Finland once, and, and Finns have a, a very respectful relationship with the environment, but a really curious relationship in that they, um, the bear is like a sacred animal to many Finns, whereas wolves have been hunted and sort of mercilessly eradicated for a long time. And uh, so the very name of wolf in Finnish, uh, susi, mean, uh, I understood it to mean a useless thing. Um, you know, it's, right. it's, uh, yeah. uh, it means, you know, of no value. 
as unlike mm. other animals. And so it's, I, this was really interesting, actually. I didn't know this, but discovered recently that um, the Japanese word for wolf, ukami, uh, sort of translates as sort of godlike or great god or something like this. Mm. And in the Shogun era, so you're talking about the period from sort of 710 to the kind of mid-19th century, mid to late 19th century, wolves mm. were admired for keeping wildlife away from crops and there were wolf shrines that people left offerings at in Japan. And it's only when Western agricultural advisors came to Japan in like the 1860s, 1870s, that they advised that wolves should be poisoned. And then attitudes to wolves became a lot more negative. But you had those two, those dichotomous views of wolf being held at the same time. There were some people mm. worshipping at shrines of wolves and other people poisoning them and i guess you know we would then lead on to you know our forebears or, or whatever settling in north america and taking those malign european attitudes to wolves and set loose on a on terrain that had a lot of wolves where they felt there was a a duty to subdue them and subdue the wilderness that supported them um and humans have devised well, um, a, a startling array you know, of ways of killing wolves there and so my, my turn for a Barry Lopez quote now, because, uh, um, and I assume we're, we're quoting from the same book here, the wonderful book of Wolves and Men uh, by yeah. Barry Lopez. And of that destruction, he says this, and this is powerful stuff. He said, it goes beyond the casual cruelty sociologists say manifests itself among people under stress. It is the violent expression of a terrible assumption that men have the right to kill other creatures not for what they do, but for fear of what they may do. Yeah, no, I, I think it was kind of where I was going with this. And it, it, it's territory I don't really like going to because you're kind of looking for the the positives that we will come on to later. But I guess if you think of it in terms of this as being a narrative arc, and here's the low point of the story is, is what humans were, stroke, are prepared to do to those animals because of what they might do. Um there's a book by Bruce Hampton, The Great American Wolf. I'm not sure if you've come across that, but I, I haven't. Um, it's, a, um, it's a wonderful read, but just a tiny quote from that, which is, you know, many wolves suffered deaths that carried the marks of revenge, such as being burned alive or scalped. Others had their mouths mm. wired shut or their eyes pierced with branding irons before being released to starve to death. And, you know, we devised this incredible array of aerial hunting digging their dens out, pitfall traps, poison, steel traps, fish hooks put in bait, set guns. I, I did some study and found that there was, um, particularly out on the prairies, cattle ranchers and pelt hunters, there were lines of strychnine bait laid out that were 150 miles long. Can't mm. imagine that. One man recalls killing 800 wolves in the winter of 1861, and in 35 years in Montana... 80,000 wolves were killed. You know, that's kind of... Um, it's a genocide, isn't it? You know, that, that's, that's, that's not... We need to keep things in check or they're a rival to us. That, that's like, we don't, we're going to get every last one and, and before they do anything to us and we're going to make that as unpleasant as possible. So let's go back to, um, you know, 
cultural associations with wolves then because i we then we then have the the kind of more um a lot more of those positive associations that, that humans have with wolves and of course we have this thing now where many people see them as particularly noble animals and goodness knows there's a there's a million and one musical artistic references to wolves which i would i wanted to kind of see what you knew of that because you're you're a cultured man colin unlike me am i um yeah there, there is a lot out there and uh i recently watched the liam neeson film the gray which i'm not sure if you've seen um but uh to to cut it down to its basic components um a group of kind of oil workers in the sort of yukon territory i think sort of their plane crashes on their way home and uh they're pursued by a wolf pack um one of which is this enormous grey wolf um and uh, Liam Neeson is the token wild man of the of the group and uh you know it's his knowledge and uh that that nearly saves them but I, I won't give too much away but uh, they all die um and 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 so there's and so there's 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 few films that sort of treat the wolf really really um accurately um and then of course as you go to the other end they become the total stuff of nightmares when you think about um the werewolf which i'm sure we'll get onto um but uh there's there's few films in between those two places um either you know scary wolf that's going to kill you or human that's going to turn into a scary wolf that's going to kill you um and uh it's it, uh, I say there's there's not much in between there in the in the film world. I don't think anyway. I haven't seen every film associated with the wolf, but uh, so let's. Um, can you give me a little bit of werewolves? Because I'm dying to go to werewolves, and I've got prepared nothing really for the podcast. This other than Warren Zevon's Werewolves of London. Well, it was it it was it was the first thing I wrote on my notes. The first thing I wrote in my notes was he's the hairy-handed gent who ran a mock in Kent, and. Uh, I must also say, it's a ripping version of Warren Zevon's Werewolves of London, um, performed by Bob Dylan and the Rolling Thunder Review. And uh, if you listen to the Rolling Thunder Review live album, cracking version of Werewolves of London. Um, but, uh, yeah, Warren Zevon's Werewolves of London, also quoted in the film The Colour of Money, by a young and baby-faced Tom Cruise. Um, and so, werewolves, yeah, we, we, we have all these associations of wolves in our uh in our culture and our fairy tales and in our in our scripture but then um they become the ultimate fear they become the ultimate terror by getting up off of four legs and walking on two um and and becoming um ironically becoming more human like but because of them becoming more human like that somehow more terrifying um the same reason why people find the idea of bigfoot or sasquatch terrifying it's it's too close to us for comfort um and uh the idea that uh that the terror of the werewolf is is kind of inescapable and actually i think i probably watched the film an american werewolf in london when i was about 13 and there's a particular scene um, in that film where someone is being pursued through a London underground station um, by the werewolf 
and there is a dreadful sense of inevitability, inescapability um, about trying to escape um, such a predator. Um, and that's what scares us so much about the um, about the, the the kind of fictional world of the werewolf. It's already a terrifying animal and is made more terrifying by it taking on um, more of a human aspect. And as you say, it, we're, we're looping right back now to that quote you gave about how we project onto the wolf the very the very worst parts of our own um, character and our own faults as a species. I, I and I guess if we don't say stay off the moors at this point, we'll have missed, yes. missed the whole point of <laughs> referencing American werewolf in London. Yeah, 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 yeah. Stay on the road. Stay on the road. Keep off the moors. This will be the place in the podcast to put a howl in. I think there. So. Yeah. Or 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 some find. Um, uh, a clip of Brian Glover saying that, yeah, at the slaughtered lamb. The slaughtered, the slaughtered lamb. Yeah. <laughs> Boys, keep off the moors. Stick to the roads. The best of luck. So on that, Ian, is it's interested to to hear from you really because you used to live in Scotland and and uh, according to popular anecdote at least the last wolf in britain was killed in scotland in 16 something uh, 1743 date? 1743 1743 okay okay well well done for hanging on for that long um and i know there's some dispute about whether that really was the last wolf or or if it if it indeed was that late but um there's also been some suggestion from some private individuals that uh, that we might reintroduce wolves to britain um, and I know that that, that met with a, a fair clamour of of opinion from from the public. I think it's really interesting. I guess my kickoff for that discussion is that um, wolves appear to cope well with extreme wilderness, but they also inhabit crowded agricultural lands on the edge of towns and villages. And we have this concept that wolves living near human settlements have a degraded life in some form. And it's it's a very strongly anthropogenic point of view and a stereotype view of nature that, you know, we can't find space for these things. They, they live in the wild um, as opposed to living near us. Um, so if, if we're going to talk about the UK and whether we have them back, then there's plenty of examples on the doorstep in Europe of countries that have wolves where the populations are increasing because people are moving mm. to the towns and cities and so the countryside is more open. Germany's the classic, you know, population of 82 million people, an industrialised nation, animals deeply entrenched in German folklore. I think the last wild wolf, if you go back far enough, was shot in 1904, relatively recently. Um, but in 1998, wolves were spotted in uh, Richten in Saxony, eastern Germany probably come across the border from Poland um, and by last year Germany's wolf population was about 1,300 wolves mm. in over 100 packs and and if you look at the landscape and I've been to that landscape it looked just like agricultural parts of Herefordshire Gloucestershire it's, yeah, it's not right. it's not the Scottish mountains wilderness and um, and of course wolves have returned to huge parts of Spain, France, and, and as close as the Netherlands and Belgium. Um, 
So Europe has a population, if you leave out Russia and Belarus and Ukraine, of about 12,000 wolves. You know, so mm. they are, they're right on the edge of the UK. And, uh, of course, we would have to choose to bring them back. Um, but it is a fascinating, if you leave aside it being a very British-centric view of what we do about that, you know, there are plenty of countries that have lots of wolves or could have more wolves. So it's more a symbol of what is all of our views as humans about about wolves, really. Are we prepared to lecture India and other nations that they should take care of the tiger population when many countries are uneasy about having predators themselves and the UK has pretty much none that, are, that, could, yeah. that could threaten yeah. livestock or humans? So that, that that's probably the... The the argument I would leverage there is that, you know, we have these notions built up around wolves which are not based in science, and maybe scientists and researchers don't always use a language which people hold certain values in our society would struggle to to relate to. So it's it's trying to find a way around that that sort of I mean, and of course what we have is a great example of wolves being brought back to. Yellowstone. So, you know, the last known Yellowstone wolf was killed in the 1940s by the Ranger Service. And then the Endangered Species Act in in the US was brought in, which required recovery plans for species. And in 1987, um, they considered bringing wolves back. It wasn't until um, 1995 and 1996 where wolves were tranquilized Canadian wolves that were destined for the fur trade. So they persuaded hunters to dart them. And uh, a group of 14 in 1995, a group of 17 in 1996, and reintroduced in Yellowstone. And it was the most amazing, successful reintroduction. Mm. you know. And then it leads on to me talking about what ecologists call trophic cascades, where bringing the wolf back had an amazing impact on other parts of the ecosystem there's a, a there's an inuit yeah. proverb that you know the caribou feeds the wolf but it's the wolf who keeps the caribou strong and i think that yeah that, that's yeah. you know there's a lot that happened in yellowstone around that and and i think the i think the famous biologist eo wilson um estimated uh, um, estimated something like that for each reintroduced wolf in into yellowstone uh, a billion other organisms um, were kind of given space to live, um, and uh, and I and I understand that um, we've given two Aldo Leopold quotes. Is is I understand that one of the one of the packs that established itself in Yellowstone was was given the name the Leopold, Leopold pack. pack. Is that yeah, right? Yeah, I've seen the Leopold pack, mm. and it's um it's uh, it's a glorious piece of terrain that, that, that I saw them in as well, and uh, interesting in that it. it it kind of tees up what I was going to say next, but I hadn't expected you to do that, in that you look at that terrain and with the walls back in it, it's an area with a lot of um, young willows and little aspens and, and small trees. And uh, and I guess what would have happened once upon a time is the, the elk, you know, like red deer in Europe, the elk would have gone down into those hollows and eaten every single one of those young trees. And it's not that the wolves have decimated the, uh, the deer, the elk population. It's more that the, the elk are more wary. They go down into the hollows and they're kind of looking around a lot more. So they're not going to eat every single one. So what you've seen is a resurgence in 
vegetation. You have this weird thing where the population of beavers has increased since the wolves were returned. Even though wolves eat beavers, you end up with a lot more damp hollows and willows and the kind of things that beavers need. Um, you end up with more beavers flooding areas, so there's more dead trees for woodpeckers and flycatchers and more grasslands for larks, pipits, buntings, yes, bobolinks. So you have this weird cascade effect of, you know, more flycatchers, are there? Because there's more wolves. It's a really curious, mm. unexpected or maybe not so unexpected mm. thing. And, uh, and I, I like the way that Jim Comley describes it. And it would be nice in a country that, that we live in, which is actually overrun with deer with no natural predators, to imagine the beneficial effect it would have. And all the deer that go out into farmland and eat crops would be less likely to do so. So, um, so yeah, there we are. we got, you know, beautiful examples. Wolves are restoring habitats, potentially drawing more visitors to places. They're inspiring us. Um, but they're kind of more than economics and they're more than physical creatures. I think they're like a... They're an image to the world, to ourselves, that wild things and wilderness remains. And uh, we're recording this at a time when not many people are getting out into the natural world because of uh, circumstances around the pandemic, the, the COVID virus. And you think it never seems more important to to know that there's that out there. Um, so I guess I wanted to conclude. I once met, as I said, Doug Smith, um, and he quotes uh, Ed Bangs, who is, I think, effectively his boss at the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, part of the the Wolf Recovery Coordinator for the Northwest of the USA, and uh, a man at the heart of all those conflicts, the the way that humans view wolves, and how you resolve that, and what our future is alongside wolves. Uh, and he said, uh, "I've always said that the best wolf habitat resides in the human heart." You have to leave a little space for them to live there. <laughs>